Yes. <laughs> you're you're Eric, right? That's me. And, and you're Dan. That is that is correct. We're both each other. Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> excuse me. Wait, what a, happened? <laughs> little cough there. Um, I thought that was just the sound of becoming me. <laughs> the sound. Of, it's a lot of wheezing and grunting, sobbing. <laughs> This is going to be a really dramatic podcast, this episode. A lot of sobbing and weeping. It's just the, you know, the sounds of being old and sad. This is our Midwest emo podcast. Um, Not even Midwest, just overall, every region. You know, that's the one genre that I've never really heard of, like, other countries embracing. Like, emo? Yeah, does it exist in like, I don't know, like Russia or, I don't know, or like um, Israel or like you know like, I mean you you know what I'm saying like even like England you don't really hear a lot of England emo bands you don't hear about a lot of that at, yeah, huh, I guess not. I was just trying to think of um funny uh, takes on the the various ones like in ska you know everything has to have ska in the name. So you'd have to work emo in, like you play Maximo, maybe. <laughs> Maximo. Um, or tech, Texamo, no. Tex, Texamo. <laughs> so now like the genres are sounding like gas stations. <laughs> yeah. hey, I need to go get, a, you know, a bottle of Mountain Dew from the Texamo. Uh, Emotin, that's in Canada. Emotin. Yeah. <laughs> uh emotive um (laughs) but uh yeah so uh how's your week been eric what's what's been going on on uh, your side of the um well iowa the side of johnson county (laughs) the the same exact uh side that i'm on just you know different counties yeah um yeah well my wife and i got our second vaccine vaccination doses on Friday, and we were ah. a little ill. Did Saturday you, you, and you Sunday. You got ill from the effects of yeah. the vaccine. Yeah, run down, headache, things like that. But so, so was that the Pfizer or whatever? I, I don't remember which one we got. Honestly, mm. I think it might have been Moderna. Moderna. But um, it was yeah. But now we're feeling better now, and it's spring break, so we're not doing much of anything. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's yeah. spring break this week. Yeah. Boy, yeah, so. does that does it sure ever feel like it outside? I know. I'm so glad it snowed. <laughs> the first day of spring break. And uh right after we had a string of actual like 70 degree weather. I know. I'm so glad it got up to a high of 37 today. Yeah, Welcome was, to Iowa. <laughs> right. It was like 3 weeks ago it was like negative 10. Yeah. And then 2 weeks ago it was like 80. And melted all this, like, literally, there was probably a five to six foot snow drift in my yard. Like, where I had piled snowed up, like, the whole winter. Or a snow pile, not a drift. And that all melted in, like, four days. It was oh, crazy. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. But yeah. then it snowed again. <laughs> yeah, that's... uh our driveway was completely covered in ice. Cause I mean, we live in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You've been out here briefly. Yep. Um, 
And so we could, we literally couldn't leave our driveway for probably like three weeks. Um, Besides the fact that, you know, my dad and I were both sick. um, Even if we were okay, we still would have been snowed in for like two or three weeks um, because it just didn't get warm enough to even become close to melting the snow. But yeah, when we started to get that, um, when we started to get the actual like above 45 degrees and then Mm -hmm. it got up to like 60 or 70, it all just disappeared at the snap of a finger. Yeah. It really felt like it. And actually the, uh, the snow we got today, uh, I think other states or other areas must have gotten hit harder because I was expecting it to be, I mean, it's still pretty crappy out, but I was expecting it to be much worse mm-hmm. from kind of what they were forecasting. So, yeah, you know, yeah. you know what they say that some people say that the uh, weathermen are like the only people that have jobs that they could get paid to be wrong at. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, that's true. But where does the president like, (laughs) (laughs) where does, where do the people in charge, like where, where do they fall into that category then? Because that's true. Seems to me like they get paid an awful lot to be wrong a lot. (laughs) So I agree with that. Yes. That is my political (laughs) rant for the evening. (laughs) Are you guys okay with that? (laughs) Yeah. Hey, keep politics out of it, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, shoot. Uh, yeah. we, we, we got Sean Reed on the program. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's that's going to be really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. He'll be talking to us. Um, Sean is, uh, for those of you who don't know, Sean Reed, he's um, been a... Uh, in i guess you could say just a a fixture in the local like regional punk rock diy art whatever you want to call it psychedelic um he's uh gone through a lot of phases in his music and uh, they're all very interesting he's also a really really stunning visual artist mm-hmm. and um Right now, his current project is uh, Feel Free Hi-Fi, uh, which involves, as you were saying, Eric, sound systems, uh, yeah. dub, reggae-influenced. Mm-hmm. He's got a new label called Digital Sting, uh, which I, do, I don't think it's just like a record label. I think it's probably sort of just a umbrella art sort of collective type thing maybe i'm not really sure you have any insight in that eric um no i don't really um i know that they're putting out like you said the feel free hi-fi music Mm -hmm. um but no i would not be surprised if uh it was also going to include other music or other art or um other information in some kind of way so uh it's it's exciting. I'm always stoked when Sean starts something up new because I know that um I know that it will be created and presented with the utmost of care and uh style and you know, I I I think Sean understands um 
the importance of how things are presented probably as much or more than any other artist I've uh, been able to work around and be around and um, and I think I think that's an important thing that a lot of people miss out on you know is how you're presenting not just the current thing you're presenting but the entire uh, aesthetic around it and uh, yeah I think Sean nails that so whatever it is it's going to be awesome. I, yeah. I, if, if, so. if there's, Oh, sorry. If there is oh, anybody, if there's anybody who I know that has stayed true to a, what it is that he does aesthetically, visually, uh, sonically, even if, you know, the projects are totally different from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a common thread. It seems like, uh, with his work, there's all, there's always, like you said, a style to it. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a style to everything Sean does. Yeah. And, um, it, it all links together in this weird sort of way, you know, I mean, even like already just looking at, um, some of the digital sting stuff on his Instagram. Mm-hmm. Cause I know that, um, I know he does do screen prints and like, I think he's, they released some shirts, Mm uh, and you know, jackets or something like that. Um, but it, you know, from what I've seen, there's elements of it that remind me of what he was doing with night people, which was his previous Mm -hmm. label. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's something completely different and new and fresh at the same time. So yeah. Uh, and even sonically, sure. even sonically, like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if we're supposed to say this or if I'm supposed to say this or not, but mm. we've, me and you have already listened to advanced copies of the, of the records. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, even I think in, they're out now. So, okay. They are out now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, which means that I gotta, you know, get off my butt and order the vinyl. Cause I would like to hear those on vinyl. But, um, yeah, they, uh, there's, you know, it's in that same way, there's similarities that I could, uh, see like with his previous group, wet hair. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's two completely different things, you know, but there's, there's this common thread. I wonder how he feels about that, about me saying something like that. If he, if he sees it as a completely separate entity from, Mm the night people thing or if that's, but these are all questions that we're going to ask Sean yeah. when we talk we'll have to, to ask him. him. I'll we'll be have like, to ask him on a scale of one to 10. How pissed off at Dan are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> that's, Cause that's really what the whole all podcast that shit he talked. A that's, bit really, that's really what the podcast is about. It's about <laughs> just shitting on Dan. Yeah. In fact, we're thinking about changing it to shitting on Dan. Yeah, I'm gonna. We should just call it a beef cast. A beef, a beef. All we cast. do is get people on here to interview them and start beefs. Dude, beef cast. <laughs> that sounds like one of the greatest metal bands that ever existed. Beef yeah. cast. Mm, I'd listen to it. I wouldn't need it, but I'd listen to it. I don't know. Beef is pretty good, but maybe if yeah. they have a Beyond Beef cast. A Beyond, yeah, <laughs> Beyond Beef cast. That the Impossible you know, I, Beef cast. I still, I still eat meat, and yeah. th- I've definitely thought about cutting back or just giving it up completely at some point in mm-hmm. my life. And I, ha- I have actually um, explored 
a lot of the veggie options. And I got to say every veggie option I've ever tried, like I actually tried like uh, a while back, I tried a mm. uh, beyond sausage oh, biscuit yeah. and it was really, really good. It All the beyond just, stuff is awesome. Beyond. Yeah. Beyond burgers. They taste just like burgers. Yeah. I grill yeah. them up all the time. I love them. But so. I just, I, <laughs> I'm still eating meat at the age of 40. And, uh, well, there's, I mean, the only reason I don't do it, and I think I've said this before, it's not like I'm being preachy here. Like for me personally, I, it helps me to make better choices when I'm eating food. That's, that's it. Like at some point I had to switch from finding the most calorically dense fattening thing on the menu to like trying to somewhat think about what I was eating. Yeah. You know? it's, I mean, it's it would seriously be like, what do you have that's made of meat, bread and cheese and weighs four pounds? Like, I don't even care what it is. Just bring it out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so at a certain point I was like, Hmm, maybe a piece of fish or uh, some veggies would do me be- better. And that's actually, know? actually that's <laughs> one of my favorite meals is sauteing up some salmon Mm-hmm. fillets with like you know some garlic olive oil and broccoli or something oh, yeah. like that you know simple yet elegant kind of and just delicious yeah very simple and, it, and it's very very easy to make too like people don't understand how easy it actually is to cook healthy for yourself yeah you know yeah it just i mean it takes a little bit of getting used to but yeah know. absolutely but you can make it more difficult than it actually is, which I've done. Right. Because I'm always in my head. I'm like, well, okay, what am I going to do for dinner tonight? Right. Am I going to cook? Yeah, probably not. Unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) but I do cook. I don't want you to think that I don't cook because I do. I do cook. Um, but yes, food, (laughs) food is one of those things that is, uh, delicious. Yeah, it is good. I like I it. I can't I can't think <laughs> of anything else that is delicious because there mm, isn't anything right. else besides food that we really taste willingly. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, we've tasted things that we don't want to taste. But yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Um so I think that um what what we're doing with this podcast is I don't even know anymore. Um, Just trying to start beefs. Trying to start beefs with the beef cast. <laughs> Welcome to the, you know, but if we do do that, we have to change our voices. You know that. Welcome to the Iowa beef cast. Oh, you know, yeah. We have, to, we have to be like that, you know. Um, <laughs> like like uh, ringside announcers. Is that the idea? Yeah, or exactly. Like it's the Iowa beef or, cast. We're here, you know. Like, or like. Yeah, like that. And, you know, just like, 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 like okay, pro like, wrestlers. Like if you turn it over to the AM station and it's like just oh. a couple of guys talking about farming. Oh, you know? Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, well today, you know, I don't know if they actually <laughs> talk like that, but that's just how I picture it in my head today on the Iowa beef cast. We're going to be talking to, you know, people who, you know, want to, I know, see. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> Coming to you directly from. <laughs> yeah. Like shock jocks. Yeah. You know, we'll be like from Ainsworth Corners. <laughs> Ainsworth Corner, dude. Ainsworth Corners. 
Wow. That's so funny you mentioned that. I was just up there, like, not that long oh, ago. Yeah. We, we don't live that far from there. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Ainsworth Corners. Yeah. Ainsworth is one of those weird places, man. There's this um campground that my dad actually likes camping at called Mar Park. Hmm. And I always think of Johnny Mar. Oh, yeah. Whenever, whenever I drive by Mar Park. <laughs> and I always wonder if, like, maybe Johnny Mar had a hand in naming it. Oh, like he it visited make, it. It makes sense. <laughs> like, you know, like the, the people who like, you know, in Ainsworth who decided to open up the campground or were huge Smiths fans. Could be. And yeah. uh, the Smiths just happened to be driving through Ainsworth corners to pick up a meal on one of their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Iowa. Tour. It, dates. Could, it, could, yeah. it could happen. You sure. know, I just I saw a preview for a movie. I don't remember what it's called, but it's, the premise is that the Smiths are uh, the best band in the world. So a little bit of uh, suspension of disbelief. There already. <laughs> um, but no, I mean like, uh, like they are the most important band that's ever existed is the idea apparently in this movie. And it's in the eighties and for some reason, Oh, the Smiths break up and then, a group of young people or a guy takes over the radio station in his town at gunpoint and makes them play the Smiths all night while his <laughs> friends have a dance party. And it's like a party show. It's like, a, it's not like a drama or like a crime movie. It's like a what's fun, the, like, what's the name of this? I don't remember. <laughs> But Dude, I was just you like, had me. You had me at, at at making somebody listen to the Smiths at gunpoint. You had me there, man. That's that's gonna make me want to watch the movie. The whole. But the no, whole it's like thing. a kids, like a teenager party movie. Yeah, it's, there's um, nothing wrong with teenager party movies. Well, yeah, but I mean, usually they don't have someone being made to play the Smiths at gunpoint. <laughs> That sounds like a good movie to me. It kind of makes it less like a, just a fun teen romp. Sounds you know. fun to me. It's called shoplifters of the world. <laughs> That's the- <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Oh my God, I mean, dude. I don't the even want to do fine. They're fine. I just, you know, you know what we need to do is, I mean, is this movie coming to theaters or something or is it new or is it? I don't know. Oh man. Cause what uh, I was going to say is you remember that idea that I had that we could do like reactions <laughs> like on the channel. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, I would love to react to that having, but if we did do March that 26, that comes out, <laughs> is it coming to theaters or is it coming straight to like streaming? Uh, shit. I don't know. Cause I'm not sure. Dude. Wow. And I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not familiar with the Smiths, man. Like that's one of the they're, things. They're good. They, they are fine. But I don't think <laughs> they're. But fine. I mean, the whole, the whole movie, the all the kids in it are like the Smiths are the most important thing that's ever happened <laughs> to the world ever, and and it's just like, well, I don't know. It feels kind of like when Rock and Roll High School was originally written for Cheap Trick. You know, but then they they dropped out and the Ramones did it. And then they just rewrote everything like the Ramones are the most important band in the world. And the whole time you're like, yeah, but you wrote this for a cheap trick. 
Anyway, that's yeah. kind of well. Feels. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this movie was originally written for. Um, <laughs> The I don't Ramones. know. The, the, the I was going to think of, well, that would, would make that even funnier is that three fourths of the Ramones are dead. Yeah. Well, actually more than that, I guess. Like I'm trying to think like, well, cause technically uh Marky was a replacement, wasn't he? For Tommy, I believe. For Tommy. Yeah. yeah. Right. And Tommy, did Tommy die? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. Tommy's dead. So, you could actually say four fifths of the Ramones. There, yeah, I don't think there are any uh, original Ramones left. Yeah, uh, C- CJ still alive, but CJ came way later. Right. Um, yeah, he's so, only like twenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely he's, not true. He's probably the same age as me. Well, no, probably. Yeah, old, because but. I mean, by the time that he joined the Ramones, those guys were all our age now, at least. Yeah. I mean, Johnny. Actually, was probably... he's ten years older than me. Damn. Is he really? He's yeah. he's in his fifties. I look terrible. <laughs> you... <laughs> so, yeah, CJ Rimbaud. But anyway, yeah, that, anyway. That, that would make the movie that much more humorous. But I was gonna say something right. really dumb. I don't even remember. Like, the movie was originally, you know, made for. Oh, let's just say Modest Mouse because Johnny Moore, Johnny Marr joined Modest Mouse for that one album. Oh wow, yeah, all right, yeah. yeah. I'd probably oh, be more willing which, to see that movie. Speaking I, of which, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm gonna let you finish. I'm gonna let you finish. Kanye no, I style. just, uh, I just think that uh, I like, um, I like the idea of uh, someone taking over a radio station and making them play Modest Mouse all night while they have a really <laughs> sad dance party i think that would, would be, be fucking great yeah no no teeth like god's shoe shine <laughs> track number one play it now <laughs> um well and then the other thing that made me think you you mentioned something about in a suspension of disbelief the smiths are like you meant you like quote i think that was a direct quote from just 10 minutes ago from you <laughs> yeah and modest mouse actually have a song called willful suspension of disbelief oh wow so hmm. like they now that that was not that was on that EP called Everywhere in His Nasty Parlor Tricks which came out that was the release that was right before hmm. um We Were Dead Before the Shipping Sank which was the one album that Johnny Marr played on. Well. And hmm. you know how like pissed off like Smiths fans were that Modest Mouse got to have Johnny Marr? <laughs> no, I didn't know that they I, would have cared. I don't I don't know either, but I Odd. I would like to think that they were because I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Because even Isaac Brock said in an interview he wasn't a big Smiths fan, so like <laughs> that's that awesome. Did he tell makes him it even too? funnier? I'm sure he told him that. Oh I mean Johnny yeah. Marr, like that's probably why Johnny quit. He's like, Well, guess I'm not in this crappy band anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, probably uh... not. Don't believe anything I say from now on. And uh now on to our uh, conversation with Sean Reed. Hello. Hi again. Let me see. Oh, Hold I on. See. I don't I think it's it. actually recording yet. There it is. There it says. It's, it's record. I see it's recording on my end. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. Yep. It's so it's working and. Uh, how are you guys doing? We're we're finally here. We finally made it. 
Yeah, no worries. Uh, Te- yeah. Technology's hard, as we all know. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. To, it's supposed to be easy, but it oftentimes is not. Yeah. No, it that definitely is so, and it, it gets worse when you get older too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's moving. It moves very quickly. So I'm I'm gonna blame the technology. I think the technology gets worse as I get older. <laughs> Yeah, I I would have to agree with you in some respects. You know, it's amazing though. I was actually um, looking at uh, listening to some uh, like because uh, I used to kind of be like an analog purist when it came to like amps. Like I have a tube amp, you know. I don't know how you feel about this, Eric or you, Sean. But um, actually, some of these new digital like amps, like there's this uh, combo amp called the Boss Katana. You can actually make it sound almost exactly like a Fender tube amp, for example, or something like oh, that, which is yeah, something that sure. totally, totally did not exist like when we were growing up. The you know? um, the new Fender Tone Masters that they came out with like two years ago, um, mm-hmm. they're sick. Like they have a twin reverb and a deluxe reverb. And the music store I used to work at, we had the twin reverb that I now played through. But we set it up against the Tone Master, and like even our like techs couldn't tell the difference. It was pretty amazing, and it was digital. It weighed half half as much as the real amp. So um, I think could it, uh, could it model the you know because what I used to do back in the day when I still played guitar and stuff is I had a Sovtech, and it oh, was a oh. fifty watt old school Sovtech tube amp. Yeah, and you know when I was playing in hardcore bands and stuff, and like you know the more noise rock sort of vein of things, psychedelic rock stuff, I used to like push the tubes intentionally, so it was kind of like an underpowered amp that then I would like naturally overdrive by pushing tubes, which like burns out the tubes. But that'd be the only thing that I'd wonder if like I wonder if they can model that. They probably can. Yeah, yeah, they. I, they came pretty close, and it also had a master volume, so you could control how much gain. Um, you didn't necessarily have to over have it be an overdrive of the tubes or whatever. But yeah, yeah. was that a Sovtech head that you played through? Yeah, I actually had yeah I had a Sovtech. I it's think like I the, know that amp. The Big <laughs> Fifty. It's yeah. The most like, Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cool. did it make its way around Iowa City to other people by chance? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. No, I think I don't remember when I sold that. I might have sold oh. that up here, but I don't. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I've heard that amp though. I've seen other people play through it. It's pretty sick. Yeah. Nice. It was. Oh, a yeah. cool, it was a cool <laughs> oh, amp because it was like uh, it was it was sort of like affordable yeah. for. You know what I mean? It's like it was like a really good amp, like for the money, basically. Right, for sure. Sort of weird, so that also had a certain cachet to it. Yeah. So. I I don't know. I used to be sort of a purist or whatever, and now it's like, honestly, whatever gets the job done, whatever gets the sound I want, like I don't even care anymore. Like, I think that switching over or starting to do modular synths made all the difference because you can have an analog module or a digital module and like it doesn't matter it's all in one case so you've already corrupted your your um your signal path if you will like if you're going to try to be a purist like there's really no way 
So now yeah. I'm just like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> if, it, if it sounds the way I want it to sound, then I'll play through anything. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember like at some point too, is like when I was doing uh, my project Wet Hair mm-hmm. um, with Ryan Carvis all those years, like my main, my, the main synth I had was a Roland SH-101. Oh yeah. And I would always have to have a backup for it. So mm-hmm. I actually had a, uh, another one, uh, another Roland synth. It wasn't, it wasn't a 101. I can't even remember what it was. It was like, it was like the model, like right before the 101. And I would have to like take that on tour as well, because, you know, it's like the 101 is like this, you know, great synth, but was sort mm-hmm. of finicky and you're taking it on the road and it's old and it's analog. Right. And, you know, there's just a certain side of that stuff that become that can be like really impractical. And then mm-hmm. and then the value of some of that stuff is skyrocketed so high, like old school vintage analog synths and stuff like my oh, one yeah. now is worth so much that, you know, I, I don't even know if I would trust taking it out like that again. But when I bought right. it, you know, just a few hundred bucks and now it's mm-hmm. like, you know, so. It's kind of interesting how that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. As far Powerful. as I can tell, synths are better to um, invest in than stocks, or even <laughs> even gold. Like <laughs> just yeah. If you have something old, just put it in the closet. I mean, what warm about- it up a little so the oscillators stay somewhat non-juiced. But yeah. What about Bitcoin? No, no. Better, better. Uh, Return than Bitcoin, even. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to start investing in some synthesizers. Then. Well, I actually just started a synth investment company. And um, <laughs> so you just give me some money and I'll buy some old synths with it. And then I'll even keep them here at my house. And, um, you know, so they stay safe and <clears throat> things like that. So anyone that wants to send me money for synths, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> go right ahead and do it. I'll hold on to the money. <laughs> it's interesting what people get into because I, as I was like um, kind of getting out of, you know, I was never like a big gear person exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to have like some cool, unique stuff that, you know, could help me carve out my own sound or for whatever I was doing, whatever band, you know, I was playing in. But at the same time, I couldn't really afford to like dabble super hard and i've always been such a record nerd that like records would kind of win out over gear for me (laughs) yeah um but i do have a friend that like is just you know he has to like he can't buy the like new version of the roland 808 put out by roland he has to have the original even if it's like slightly broken you know (laughs) it's like he has to have the original and, and I get that. It's cool. But he's also into like FM synths and like early digital synths, sure. which I think is like a whole nother kind of nerdy thing oh, to get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like FM synthesis. I could sit here and talk about synths all day and someone that's into FM would just be like, man, you're a nerd. Like you don't know anything about synthesizers. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, cause it's so, it's so, um, reduced down to the core of what it is, which is basically numbers and values. And, you know, I really enjoy turning knobs and moving sliders. And, you know, that's what's fun for me. Um, But then going through and um, 
typing in patches and changing parameters and things doesn't seem as fun to me. But to some people, they're like, this is where it's at, you know? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting how that, that technology has, like, worked over time and sampling technology. Because, like, the thing that we use for... Um, for feel free hi-fi, which is like my late, the, the things I'm doing now, the project I'm doing now with my friend, Derek Maxwell, you know, we, our primary instrument is Ableton, but okay. I do feel like Ableton, you know, in my mind, like Ableton is an, an, a really impressively powerful music tool. You know, it's like, it can do so much. And he's, He's more of the Ableton jockey than I am. Like he can ride Ableton a little better than I can. And mm. he kind of masters, you know, runs the controls a little bit more than I do. Um, right. when we're, we're sitting in our little basement studio making tunes. Um, but I feel like really still to get the most out of Ableton actually even mm-hmm. is like, if you only use Ableton, I feel like it's kind of like Photoshop is the same way. Like if you're only making everything in Ableton or Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever, you can kind of tell that it's just all constructed in there. Right. Whereas in the box. Yeah. What we've always tried to do is like, I remember there was even a situation where we were trying to get this like drum sound to sound right. And it was like a 808 sample in Ableton. And it, we mm-hmm. just couldn't, we knew it was the right sound. It was the right patch, but we just couldn't get it quite right. Mm-hmm. And then we actually went and sampled the 808 and it was mm-hmm. perfect. Right. Cause the 808 just like it had something about that individual 808 in the same mm-hmm. way that my one, one is just like, when we sample it, it just, it has something, you know, like the synths and stuff or even regular other instruments. There's just, there's just something you can't. Right can't quite quantify in the same way. So I think the combo of using the software with the hardware or the, you know, actual like live instrument can really make a lot happen. For sure. And I I have lots of questions about um, how you made these uh, records that you advanced us. And thank you for that. It's really exciting. They're not, you can pre-order them, but they're not uh, available yet. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so feel free. Hi-Fi is relatively new project of mine. Um, but we've kind of been, you know, in the bunker, so to speak for a few years, kind of building up to this point. And we, yeah, we just are getting ready to put out, um, two records. Uh, they're available for pre-order right now. They're going to come out on March 26th. Um, and um yeah one's a collaboration mm-hmm. um with uh a crew from kingston jamaica called equinox who are um kind of like experimental dance hall producers they do a lot of different stuff um they have like a whole, kind of a whole team but the the main two producers um gavsborg and time cow were uh the collaborators on that record and then the other record is more of a direct feel free hi-fi sort of concept um record so yeah yeah so that's kind of the basic dude oh oh, go ahead dan oh sean i I was just gonna ask you um kind of uh leading into that um 
to, uh, to your uh, point that you were just making. Um, what actually, can you uh, kind of explain like what got you into dub music like in the first place? Because I know that you, um, uh, you know, you've gone through a lot of different like sort of musical phases with like your personal work from punk rock to psychedelic and whatnot. Um, and I, I didn't know that you were actually like embracing uh, dub music until, you know, I heard about the feel free hi-fi stuff and digital sting. Um, what kind of led you into that direction? Um, well, it actually, it goes back a long ways and it's, it's, it's cool to talk to you guys. Cause it is, is it, right when these records were come, like kind of getting ready to come out is when I discovered your podcast. And it just, <laughs> it was kind of had a synchronicity to me because I was like, man, I've known these guys for so long. We're all from the same place in right. you know Iowa places in a little town, little industrial Mississippi River town. It's kind of like, you know, and you guys are talking about, you know, all the weird music you've been into and mm-hmm. different things you've done, and you know, just thinking back, you know, to like when we were all in high school or whatever, sure. and going to shows, and it's kind of interesting. Then, like all these years later, to think like. Mm-hmm. Oh, how did I get up? How did I get to this specific right. point? When, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of a trip, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I can even think back to like spe- meeting specific people, you know, like our mutual friend, um, mutual friends of ours and stuff who turned mm-hmm. me on to certain, you know, like Jason Salick was someone I remember meeting at a certain point in time, and like, oh, Jason introduced me to like certain things, sure. certain words, you know, but really the reggae and dub thing has actually been there since high school. So Mm -hmm. like when I started to get into punk and hardcore, like ska and rocksteady and early reggae were like kind of part of that. Mm -hmm. They weren't as major maybe as like the straight punk rock thing. But I remember in high school, like having this Trojan records, like box set thing. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like, you know, Scott and Rocksteady and you know mm-hmm. UK skinhead reggae stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know listening to the Whalers and uh, Bob Marley and and different things so you know and I think it really kind of came from that same origin of like you know you hear the Clash and they were so and a lot of the British stuff and they were so heavily influenced by reggae culture Jamaican sound system culture you know the Clash collaborated with people like Mikey Dredd, who is like a, you know, a radio DJ and then a dub producer and made some really cool records. And, you know, there's a, I remember there's a picture of like John Lydon from public image and the sex pistols mm-hmm. hanging out with all these dudes in Jamaica, like big youth, who's one of my all time favorites. Um, so it was always there like a little bit. And then mm-hmm. when I went away to, you know, to go to art school, um at the university of northern iowa you know i just kind of kept expanding like different stuff i was hearing and different music i was getting into and like i was saying too like you know hanging out with people like you guys or like you know i mentioned jason just a whole host of like people i met Mm -hmm. through music through interest in underground music and so that 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 kind of orbit of sound and different aesthetics and different eras of music and different genres just kept growing and growing for me. Um, and the reggae thing was always kind of there. Like I, I, I remember distinctly 
going on one of my first tours ever when I was still playing in hardcore bands and being in New York and going to a store called Deadly Dragon Sound, which is one of the all-time great reggae record stores anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it it no longer exists, actually. Um, But I went in there, and it was this little tiny store in New York City, and it was my first time in New York. And I was so intimidated because it was like obviously like a specialty store and you like, you know, when you're young, like mm-hmm. I'm a record collector and even being kind of intimidated by sure. yeah. people, absolutely people I, you know, like someone like Luke Tweedy, who's older than me working at record collector and giving mm-hmm. me a hard time. Like, you don't own Trout Mask Reptile yet, you know, yeah. like, right. you, know? <laughs> you, know? And like, you know, but then later becoming friends with them. And so, you know, I'm at this store, Deadly Dragon Sound and I distinctly just remember picking out a few LPs to buy. Um, and I bought two scientist dub records. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I bought Heart of the Congos, which is a Lee Perry produced, really far out, amazing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you started with some of the right records then. At yeah. Least. <laughs> what? You know, but- I would suggest that to just about anyone. Like the scientist and Scratch, uh, Lee Scratch Perry, like yeah. start there, you know. Yeah, and I, I remember like another early one was I got a, um, you know, like uh, Rockers meets meets King Tubby Uptown, which mm. is like you know maybe the all time classic number one dub record ever sure. that you could recommend someone. So, um, so yeah, and it kind of like that music at that time really synthesized with like where I was listening to more like psychedelic music, like, and I was listening to more like jazz and free jazz, like Sun Ra and Albert Eiler and stuff like that. But also listening to tons of like, you know, post-punk and stuff like suicide. And, and so there was this kind of crossover. And then I remember like getting into a friend of mine from Dubuque, actually originally from Dubuque name, his name is Andy Roach. He, um, he introduced me to, I remember him talking to me about Big Youth and Big Youth was uh, an MC and he is in kind of in the like early era of when they're called DJs in Jamaica actually, but they're, they're the equivalent of MCs. So they're kind of like mm-hmm. the original rappers, like even before rap happened in the Bronx in New York, like King Cool Herc was one of the original you know, New York Bronx hip hop guys was Jamaican and that sound system culture like was heavily influenced and kind of imported in by Jamaicans in New York. Yes. Um, To the point that he would like take the labels off his records, right? Yeah. Yes. Same thing. The same thing they did in Jamaica and stuff. It's like dub plates. Yeah. Yeah. So it just kind of like all out of that and then it just kept kind of percolating in the background and I feel like it was always there like with you know when I started wet hair specifically and I was doing it just solo at first it was like very collagey mm-hmm. and I'd use like tapes and synths and I was listening to tons of Lee Perry mm-hmm. and I was listening to a lot of like reggae records that were really like ultra spiritual and kind of dark mm-hmm. at the time and um at the same time, I was listening to like tons of Throbbing Gristle and stuff like yeah. that early in Good combo. Deal, you know, and it just, I don't know, it's just like these different things would kind of come together. And I feel like, you know, with Prophet Noir, like the one of the records I sent you guys, like mm-hmm. those aesthetics are still there. Like, you know, dance hall, 
rub-a-dub dance hall sounds you know jamaican sound system music kind of that throbbing gristle industrial um you know kind of punk side of it for sure Uh, which was something i was going to ask you about which is kind of it's it's a funny thing because i think someone listening to this would say yeah this has a lot of elements of dub and some traditional elements of dub but there's also a lot of stuff here that isn't very traditional that is a little dronier or like pluckier like string pluck sounds and um just big fat synthesizers like on sorcerer um there's a part where the song kind of switches and um manic times starts talking about smoking in the dark after park or in the park after dark that moment this big fat synthesizer comes in anyway it's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing but um uh so what i'm getting at though is there are non-traditional elements in here too um but a lot of the that you do with feel free are really traditional like building the sound system itself like and you said you make dub plates and you know a lot of things like that and bringing in djs or toasters or whatever you want to say bringing those in and having them kind of talk or even in manic times case sing over things a little bit so there's a lot of tradition but there's a lot of not traditional stuff too and i just like wonder i guess my question is if you if you go to a feel free hi-fi set it's gonna feel really kind of traditional whereas listening to it may not i don't know that's not really a question i guess more of an observation but do you how do you feel about that like combining those traditional elements with some of the non-traditional music like have you run into anyone trying to like i don't know say it's not pure or anything like that do you run into anything um, you know, that's, that's a good question. That's a really good question, you know, and I'll try not to get too long winded about it, but yeah, it's definitely all stuff I've thought about, you know, because I think mm-hmm. anytime you're like making art or music, especially at, like this point in time, because there's so much history to it. And another aspect I've thought about it too, is like, and I'm not really, I'm not trying to like rip on where I come from, but like growing up in the era I did in the place that I did, mm-hmm there kind of wasn't a lot of culture that wasn't like sort of absorbed through like just hanging out with friends or like watching movies or like finding out about a record or like watching TV, you know, it it was all kind of like saturated through these different kind of mediated sources and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. so in a way, like my whole life artistically has just been a kind of amalgamation of different things that, come across my radar or I stumble into and things like that. But at the same time, you know, I've, I've really over the years tried to be very aware of like, okay, well, well, who am I? And like, you know, what are my levels of, you know, honesty about this and like, what is my privilege and, you know, am I co-opting things by being influenced by this and really trying to, to be really serious about that but not to the point where I don't do anything still, because at at the same time, I just have like an impulse to keep for whatever reason, you know, and maybe you guys feel like this too. It's like 
after all these years, like I'm still just trying to do DIY stuff and put out another record and like make weird music and like whatever. It just there's so many times where I'm like, am I gonna keep doing this? Am I like burn out? You know, and it just it just happens again. And so I actually when I when I moved away from Iowa City and moved to the Twin Cities, I had you know I've been doing wet hair and different bands for a really long, you know, for over, you know, around 10 years and mm-hmm. had toured really heavily year after year, spending two or three months on the road every year. I was doing Night People Records full time. You know, the label got up to like 250 releases, tapes and records. So it was like just this totally immersive lifestyle. Right. And I just got super burned out. Mm-hmm. And I think sure. I had to kind of check in with myself too as like getting older and and just had to like, kind of like reset and like figure a lot of things out. And I, I was actually really bummed out for a couple of years uh, when I first moved up here and I, I wasn't making music. I wasn't doing um, really anything as far as doing the label anymore, winding that down. But the one thing I was doing, and for whatever reason, like the reggae records and specifically a lot of like eighties dance hall records mm-hmm. and like dub records were just like, I was just obsessed and I just mm-hmm. spent so much time, hanging out in my room, listening to these records, watching old sound clash footage on YouTube, mm-hmm. you know, trying to find like old sound clash tapes, buying old magazines with like interviews and like collecting books on the subject of all this stuff. And so, but it, it, at the same time, it was sort of like, what am I going to do with this stuff? What, like, what, like, I'm just like this, you know, to be honest about it, I'm just this like white guy from the Midwest, mm-hmm. like living in the Twin Cities. It's like cold as hell out, you know, <laughs> like I, I have the impulse to keep making music and like kind of want to do it again. But like, how do I translate this stuff? And I would have big conversations actually with uh, my old friend, Jeff, who is Manic mm-hmm. Times. And, you know, he's an Iowa guy. He's, you know, really successful, hardcore musician, vocalist, he was also a DJ that spun a lot of reggae records and right i wondered about how i mean because you and jeff have known each other a long time but you were pretty close friends when i knew you up in like cedar falls like fsu house era and so i just wondered i have wondered about how much of because jeff and i have talked about reggae and uh, all kinds of stuff in that vein um, I wondered how much you guys came to this together or grew together in your interests or even fed off of each other. Like, have, do you think you've been a really big influence on each other or you just found it separately and realized it at some point? Or what do you think? <laughs> yeah, we were, we actually kind of def, definitely, it was like a symbiote. Like we were feeding back and forth mm-hmm. to each other because I remember us sitting in like a dorm room at you and I like listening to like Buju Banton for the first time, you know, in like 19, you know, 2000 or 1999, whatever that was, you know, and then years later, and then like, you know, when we were living in Cedar Falls, you know, he kind of went one direction with Modern Life is War. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went another direction, you know, doing Raccoon and Wet Hair and Night People records, you know, this kind of weirder esoteric, you know, going down these other lanes mm-hmm. and then and then when i was like you know jeff 
I think, moved back to Des Moines at some point, and he started mm-hmm. DJing a lot. He would come to Iowa City and and do his pressure drop nights where he was right. playing a lot of soul records and old that was a lot records. Of fun. Yeah, and those were super fun. I loved those nights, man. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just loved going to those dance parties. And so, you know, I was still buying reggae records and stuff, but that, like, seeing him do that kind of accelerated it even more. Mm-hmm. So, um, and at the same time, we started hanging out a lot more again. Mm-hmm. And, and he was living in Des Moines, and he met this guy named Al Brown, who... Um, was a visual artist living in Des Moines, but lived in New York a long time. And Al had grown up in Des Moines and he had moved to New York in the, the mid to early to mid eighties to, um, uh, go to art school. Mm-hmm. And he ended up going to a CBGB's matinee and meeting all the like New York hardcore people at the time. And so he ended up in gorilla biscuits and all these other oh, famous right. New York bands. Oh wow. And so weirdly like, wait, okay. So then, Fast forwarding, he ends up back in Des Moines. He's just hanging out mm-hmm. at a bar, eating some like dance hall records. And Jeff walks in, and those two end up meeting, and they get you know talking records and stuff. And then I end up meeting Al as well through Jeff. And so Al was definitely someone that like at the time, a little bit older than us, like had incredible knowledge, you know, the most insane record collection in general. And yeah. so. That was like, he was another person that kind of like doubled it down or it was just like, I remember going to his studio in Des Moines and just like salivating over all these records he had and stuff. And he unfortunately passed away um, randomly a few years ago. Yeah, from a brain I was just going to ask you that. It was just yeah. like, just like two years ago, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a really sad thing. But at the same time, you know, Al was such an like amazing person on so many levels that, you know, it, it's a sad thing, but at the same time it's you just feel lucky to have met someone like that or like sure you know he he just he did so much with his life that i i I can't really look at it in a sad way because it's just like he's he maxed it out you know no matter what how long how long a person like that's around they just max it out and do so many great things that it could be celebrated more than more than feel ultimately bad about but yeah i mean so then then you know i ended up in the twin cities and you know i'm collecting all these records and stuff and yeah, Jeff and I would have conversations all the time. And I actually went down to Des Moines a few times with um, like this MC505 groove box I have mm-hmm. and like um, just some pedals and the dub siren and the 101 and stuff. And we, we started kind of trying to start what would become Feel Free, mm-hmm. but we just didn't quite have the skills between the two of us. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward a little bit further i ended up meeting my friend derek random like sort of through another friend and we just kind of instantly hit it off because he had been living in new york and he was a sound engineer at clubs in new york and kind of like built sound systems for you know clubs in new york and stuff like that and so he was this builder guy who had like this engineering knowledge and also this kind of like classic sound man sound engineer sound person knowledge and then i was like the nerd with all the like records mm-hmm. and 45s and obsession with you know jamaican and uk sound systems right. and so we just derek was like let's just build a sound system and i was like all right <laughs> <laughs> nice so, 
so that was the beginning and we you know we got stuff from other people we got some speakers here or there from other people and some boxes and we just started piecing it together and you know jeff was living in des moines so jeff was around kind of like and just observing it and he was really stoked on it because he was djing a lot for sure you know and you know i think you guys probably get it like if you you know you you can we we're talking about gear when we first started this conversation it's mm-hmm. i feel like to start a to start a music project maybe part of the inspiration is just like going out and like finding a new instrument to play or like okay for sure i mean yeah. with, with wet hair it's like i didn't know how to play synth like i don't mm-hmm. i still really don't know how to play keyboard but i was just like i'm just gonna start a project off the concept of like buying a synth and like just figuring it out as we go along you know oh, so yeah. yeah so feel it's kind of similar man we just bought we just started making the sound system and the sound system was just the gateway to start making our own music right and then and then we and then we started you know and then once we started making our own music it was like well we want to play this music on the sound but we we dj vinyl like strictly and so it's like, all right, I guess we're going to have to cut dub plates then. And, right. and you know, it's, it's a nerdy side to feel free, obviously, where it's like, you know, part of it is like a sort of vanity to like build the sound system and mm-hmm. to cut dub plate, stuff like that. But it's also paying homage to those, right. you know, and kind of circling us back to what you were talk, asking me about, Eric, is like mm-hmm. that balance of how you kind of like arrive at certain things. And I think you know, that consciousness of, of trying to be influenced and pay homage, but mm-hmm. yet be honest and do something that's uniquely us is all just something that we've had t- hours of conversations about yeah. and like, been hashing out. And I've had hours of conversations with Jeff about over the years. And, um, you know, also just being really lucky that, um, you know, I was sitting on my couch one night and Time Cow from Equinox just messaged me on Instagram. <laughs> wow. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. I love this dude's music. Like, I love... At the time, I had started listening to Equinox because they had a record come out on a label called um, DDS out of the UK. And I, I mm. order a lot of records from the UK and stuff being into this dub, dub stuff and dance hall and, like, the hybrid diaspora music that came out of that. And so he just messaged me on Instagram just cause he kind of like, you know, kind of like followed me, ended up following me. And That's we just, awesome. just had, you know, there's a lot of negative sides to social media, but I have had a few instances mm-hmm. of like really special things like that happen that are just like, and it's kind of similar to like when we were young, you know, like mm-hmm. where you're like walking around, like the first day of college, I was walking across campus and I saw Jeff, from like 150 yards away yeah and we just walked up to each other and we're just like what's up man yeah <laughs> you know right because there's like those kind of weird signposts or things where you can kind of like pick up the the scent or the vibe of like okay i think i think this person's probably gonna be like my person or like one of my people mm-hmm. and I, I i remember too speaking to you guys like i remember when i went away to school you and i and then like kind of after that meeting all those people from Marshalltown and Waverly and Des Moines, the quad cities and how there was this mixing of all these like underground music weirdos and punks and stuff. Yeah. It was weird as hell. Like when, uh, yeah, all that coming together. 
Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Dan. I cut no, you off. I was just going to say, Eric and I were actually having a conversation. I don't remember if it was on the recorded part of the last episode or if it was just, you know, before we recorded or after we recorded and it was just a conversation we were having. But yeah. We were talking about how, you know, Marshalltown and Waverly, you know, uh, looking back on it, how much of an influence I feel like that area had on like the Muscatine, Iowa city kind of, I just remember like there was such a, a huge like scene there for a while, just everybody. And, and then the quad cities as well. Yeah. I remember going to shows in Marshalltown when I first met all those kids and it was like, it was like, you, you know, they were there were shows that were like shows you'd seen in like VHS bootlegs of hardcore shows. <laughs> Absolutely. Where there's like kids stage diving and like, you know, doing the like walking on people's heads and like all the hardcore dance. And it was just wild. And that was all just Nick Beard. <laughs> yeah. All town, you know, in the middle yeah. of Iowa, this old cow town, railroad town. Yeah. It's like just kind of industrial and rural and yeah. And like you said, you just mentioned Eric, you know, you ended up meeting like you and Brooks ended up meeting like Nick and Ben Driscoll. Well, and... It was, it was so weird because basically what happened for me meeting almost everyone I know now was I went to um, a birthday party for John the punk. Do you know John the punk? Sean? Oh yeah. 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 It was like his 30th birthday party, which at the time he was like the oldest dude in the world. Maybe he was 40, but (laughs) uh, I saw the heart attacks and I did not, I only knew Brooks and I didn't know anyone else in the group. And I said to Jason Salick, the one that brought me to this party, I was like, I'm going to be in that band. And soon enough, uh, I think Cody Brown was in it and he left and I just kind of stepped in and said, I'm your new bass player. But um, it was strange because I was at the FSU garage recording. It was the first time I ever actually met those guys. I was there to record with them. Like we had not played music together. And that night we ended up sleeping in the living room of the FSU house. And I was just laying there and Nick Beard was laying there and we had just met. And it was so weird because my wife, Sarah, grew up in Marshalltown. And so... Here's this guy who knows my wife for decades, essentially, and like they're close and they're friends. And then I'm laying there and it's it's a stranger. And it's just like, well, I guess this guy has to become like my best friend now. You know, it was (laughs) just like and everyone just came together and I met so many people like I knew you from Muscatine, but I didn't really know you until we were in that kind of Cedar Falls moment, you know, a couple of times, actually with you um a lot when i would come down to iowa city and visit grant and we would like meet up with you and sarah right. and yeah. like yeah oh, yeah and like but you know but i had known you a little bit from just like muscatine and you were a little bit older than us and like someone we all kind of right. looked up to a little bit and stuff so it was like yeah it, and it just, when it, i it, moved to cedar falls then i think we saw each other even more so that was yeah. a, a cool time yeah. It's very wild yeah. how the universe just comes together sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 It was funny. You just would know, like, ten people at a place you've never been and didn't even know they were going to be there. Like, I'm sure that's how it is in bigger places, but in Iowa, it felt really interesting and strange, you know, for Especially that to happen. Everybody was living <laughs> in, like, different towns. Yeah. 
basically. You know, it's like you never I never would have guessed like when I was, uh, you know, 17, 18 years old that I would have been playing in a band with, uh, you know, Brian Barr, who is now in a seath. But at the time he was in Parish of Fools and he lived an hour and a half away in Clinton. <laughs> right. And, you know, I talked to him maybe a total of like six times in my life by the time <laughs> I started that band with him. It's crazy. I yeah. was just like that, man. It's like, it's almost like the, um, I always tell people it's definitely like the uh, make do with what you have type of situation, I think, that we have going oh, on. You have but, to find each other. Yeah. As Sean as Sean was saying, there really, there really isn't a scene that existed like, you know, New York or something, you know? No, you yeah. had to, I think you had to make it happen, but I, I feel that way with, I feel that way with everything. Like, I, I don't know, without getting too lame, like the song, um, through being cool by Devo. Um, yeah. They actually kind of address this in, in the lyrics. They talk about how, if you live in a big place, you can find tons of people who would be interested in the same things as you, but you still have to do the work and start it and make it happen. And then they talk about, you know, if you live in a small town, how you basically have to seek out everyone else who's a weirdo and make that shit happen too. So either way, you know, you have to put the work in, but you definitely have more of a built in um, group of people. If you're in a really big city, you know, yeah. I think it's easier to find those people. Um, but you still have to do the work. I mean, no one has a yes. built-in scene. And if there is a built-in scene, it's probably about to die. <laughs> you know? right. Well, at the end of the day, I do wonder if because of our experiences we had in a place like Iowa, if maybe we appreciated it uh, a little or a lot more than, you know, in a bigger city where, as you said, there's probably more built-in scenes and things like that. It's kind of interesting. To th I think about that from time to time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, too, it's like, you know, A, there's a lot of just sort of serendipity with it. There's a certain amount of kind of luck of that you just have, you know, sort of different people that are, you know, kind of randomly meeting, and they have certain personalities and openness, and then that opens the door and, and I think the big thing with it, I noticed maybe that's different than some scenes. And I think now things are even changing more because just life's changing with phones and the way people interact mm -hmm. and stuff. That's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, back then I feel like the big plus of like when I orbited around Cedar Falls and I ordered around Iowa city and stuff is that we couldn't be picky and like snobby. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like you just be open. It's like, Oh, Hey, like, I mean, you know, not not that there wasn't like, you know, being cool or whatever, but it, there were sides of it. Shit. There, yeah, there's always going to be seen bullshit. But at yeah. the same time, like, I feel like there was a high degree of openness just because you kind of didn't have any other choice if you wanted to right. make anything happen. And then also that kind of DIY thing was so high with all of us because if we didn't do it, like, it literally wasn't going to happen at all because it no. didn't exist you know no so it's it like did not exist yeah <laughs> then you know when i ended up doing night people you know and just kind of slowly stumbling into doing a label like kind of really seriously it mm -hmm. was still just like i had no idea what i was actually doing <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because 
I, there was no there was no labels there was no you know what i mean we just had to put out our own stuff and like figure it right. out on our own tours and right. mm-hmm. but that you know but at the same time that makes for a kind of like that's how you end up with some you kind of unique qualities mm-hmm. uh, to stuff and you can end up with like actually like a lot of ambition actually because you know like a lot of you know, we have a lot of friends and stuff and people we've known from that era that have just gone on to make like, you know, whether, whether it, like how far it percolated beyond like the region or whatever, like there's different levels of that for sure. But at the same time, just like a tremendous amount of music and variety of music. And you even think of after those initial meetings of like, you know, we're, you're discussing Eric, like when you mm-hmm. ended up in the heart attacks or whatever, and then all that would spawn out of that, like as yeah. far as music you were making, the aesthetics of it, the different mm-hmm. avenues it went down, like all the stuff Brooks has done, you know, mm-hmm. Ben, et cetera. And then you have like Jeff and some of those other Marshall Guttown guys going down the road of modern life is war. Dan, I remember like, you know, playing shows with you when you did the band with Brian, which I think was called Girls of Command, right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, and I remember that band really distinctly because I, I remember like, playing shows with you guys and it being like, Oh man, this is a cool band. Like it's, it's cool. Dan's doing this. And it's kind of like, you know, other people I didn't really know yet who would end up like living in Iowa city later as well and stuff. So, you know, just that, that cross mingling and how then it would kind of suss out where like, you know, I ended up doing these bands with a band with Andy Spore and other people, you know, growing up with Andy and then reconnecting with him and doing a different band you know, so everyone kind of ended up in these different different channels. So in a weird way, still for me, you know, with Feel Free, that Jeff has been involved as kind of like a side member of it, uh, doing vocals on Pop Noir. Yeah, it just like it goes all the way back to day one, which is yeah. pretty wild, you know, like aesthetically and sonically and stuff. And for him, too, you know, where he always wanted to do other music beyond um, – modern life is war but he kind of didn't know how to fully i don't think and it's kind of intimidating too like that that band had a lot of success and has done a lot and it's like kind of how do you like step out of that and do something totally different you know because jeff isn't like a traditionally gifted quote-unquote singer exactly i mean he's really right. good at what he does but he had to kind of figure out a way to like adapt to all this other music that he's into but then not be lame about it so i think there's some things with that too it's just like influences as well like i remember eric we had like a conversation online i mean i think you posted like a bug record or something yeah you, uh you no, you posted something about the bug and i said how much i love the bug yeah yeah so okay yeah so we we had that connect and that you know the bug is someone just as an example of many things like you know from europe or the uk because mm-hmm. Of that Jamaican music going there and then morphing into things like combining with rave music and becoming jungle and drum and bass right. or like grime or, you know, these other avenues. Right. And the book, someone to me that really epitomizes a lot of that of like, you know, the, the, the bug obviously listened to a lot of like industrial records and techno records for, and for sure. punk records and metal records. And, yeah. you know, but then his made records that are like, modern industrial dancehall records and oh for sure yeah 
you know, there's kind of no rules, you know, it's, and, but it's all really, really well done and, and thought about. And so that, you know, that was something mm-hmm. that like, I think for like Jeff and I, you know, kind of gave us more sort of influence or like permission of, of like maybe a roadmap. And then, you know, right. meeting like the Equinox guys where you're actually, then I'm, I'm actually interacting with like very relevant, like producer creators from Jamaica. That he, adds, he was also worked with the bug, right? Equinox. Yeah. Is I, that don't, right? I don't know if they've worked with him, but they're definitely like know him and have, have played his like um, curated sound system. Oh, okay. After. Gotcha. Uh, cool. They, uh, yeah, they're 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 really dialed in, um, in a lot of avenues. So, cool. um, and then also Eddie Eddie Hill, our friend, who mm-hmm. we ended up through this project, who's a New York MC who has like a really distinct Brooklyn background, who's has Jamaican heritage, um, and you know, is is a dance hall vocalist. Also does a lot of other things, and you know, so connecting with him through this project too, that and, and him kind of like being into it and being really open to it and, and doing what he bring, bringing what he brings vocally and conceptually and in his experiences to those songs as well that he's on. Mm-hmm. And then that combining with Jeff, it's just, it's a wild combo, but somehow I, I don't know how we made it work. And maybe some people will think it doesn't work. I don't know, but we just kind of had to do it. You know, it's just I like, like the way it turned out. I, 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 Honestly, when I saw that, and I kept referring to Manic Times and not saying Jeff because I actually didn't know, you know, how much you're going to talk about the people on it or whatever. So I didn't know if Manic Times, if Jeff was not using his name specifically or whatever. But yeah, yeah, but at first I was like, oh, what is Jeff going to do on this? You know, like, and then I heard it and I think. Well, at least what you uh, sent us, Nos- Nosferatu was the first track, but I don't see that on the band camp, so I'm not sure. But Hyena was the first track of the ones you sent that had Jeff on it, and I, I like it a lot. I, I think that he's doing different voices that than he usually does. I mean, there are a couple things um, where he does mo- more of like um, what we're used to with Modern Life or something, but not everything. And so I think it, I think it works really well. I think it, I think it turned out cool. So full um, confession. I had absolutely no idea. Eric's the one that told me that man at times was Jeffrey. Eaton. <laughs> and yes. uh, I, um, when he said that it actually made sense to me, but yes, absolutely. Um, both of these records, Sean, I absolutely loved them. And I admittedly, um, and I've talked to Eric about this too. Um, I'm actually pretty new to like the whole like dub world and things like that. It was music that I never really got into uh, yeah. until recently. Um, and so I've actually been listening to some scientists and things like that on Spotify. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing world when you sort of um, discover reggae beyond not that I don't like Bob Marley, but that's always been the face that I associated with reggae was Bob Marley. And it's amazing how much different stuff comes out of that. And then another thing, uh, real quick, uh, because this got me thinking 
earlier in the conversation, Sean, when you mentioned that you were playing in the, a hardcore band um, and you were touring New York and you discovered that record shop. Um, it's interesting to me how much hardcore and reggae are actually just connected throughout history from bad brains, um, you know, playing reggae from their very first album to even things like, um, I remember watching the, um, salad days documentary, um, about the DC hardcore scene and, uh, minor threat putting on shows with like reggae and soul bands and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing how, uh, connected all that stuff is. Just wanted to make that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it goes back. I mean, for sure. Like, you know, I, I think Fugazi, like a huge influence on Fugazi was like dub and reggae and like soul music. As a matter of fact, Ian McKay uh, stated uh, when they were recording their first EP, the self-titled one, which later became half of the 13 songs album. Yeah. He actually said that um, they were trying to make the band sound like the Stooges meets reggae. Yeah. Pretty yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, and if you listen to stuff like, you know, in the UK, it was even more pronounced when you had, like, Public Image Limited, you know, and, like, the slits, like, Ari Up from, uh, no, not, that's not Ari Up, um, the, who's the singer from the slits, Adam, drunk? Um, I'm uh, not sure, but I know who it is. Yeah, he went on <laughs> to do, uh, she went on to, like, work with, Adrian Sherwood, who did On You Sound and was producing tons of stuff. And then Dennis Bovell, who was like a reggae dub guy who produced, he produced their stuff, like the slits and was producing lots of post-punk records. And at the time, like Dennis Bovell was like, he was like a sound system guy. He was, he was Jamaican living, you know, a Jamaican immigrant. His family had moved to um, the UK and like, you know, he, he was like, a UK reggae dub person that ended up producing like post-punk bands and stuff. And then Adrian Sherwood with on you sound was like a crossover of that. So, you know, the singer from the slits ended up doing new age steppers, which is like this kind of wild, like dub reggae weirdo band. Um, so, and you know, if you listen to like public image limited, you know, the bass lines and a lot of post, you know, post-punk is so minimal and stripped down and kind of like really sharp edged, but which is kind of different than reggae, but the bass lines and the spatial aspect of it and the minimalism. Yeah. Like, Especially the first couple records. Cause jaw wobble was based yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he goes by jaw wobble. So that kind of indicates right. <laughs> yeah. listening to some jaw music, you know? So, yeah. yeah, it's interesting with, like, reggae in general, too, because, you know, like, Bob Marley, even of himself, there's so many layers to that, where I think people are kind of turned off by the kind of, like, bro culture, like, yeah. bro dorm room Bob Marley legend. Yep, exactly. You know what I mean? Ad admittedly, that, that's kind of what got me thinking that all reggae is like this. Right. You know? But the other you know, thing, too, is that that's at least three steps away from the origin of all of it. You know what I mean? Like you had ska, you had dance hall and then, you know, everything just keeps getting slower and slower until essentially you get to what we know as reggae. But I mean, the connection between ska and dance hall and punk rock, I mean, that goes back even further than post punk. So it's like, 
I don't know. There's a lot of the whole history of all of that. I mean, Trojan records, the history of Trojan records is pretty much the history of punk rock, even though they didn't put out any punk rock records, you know, it's really goes back to that sound system music, which the sound system thing that, that a lot of people don't know about is that like, Originally in Jamaica, it wasn't really about live bands. Like there was just the studio, you know, similar to the Motown model or something. There was like studio bands like the Scottalites or later mm-hmm. Roots Radics or the, uh, you know, uh, Sly and Robbie, people like that. Steely and Cleavy who were just like in the studio all the time working with an engineer like Scientist or mm-hmm. King Tubby. And then there's producers that are then putting out those records like Bunny Lee or you know, there's all kinds of Junjo Waz, different ones in different eras that, that rose to the top. Mm-hmm. But, you know, really it was all about sound systems, which were like custom, custom built amplifiers, custom built speaker sets, you know, doing massive, you know, massive sound systems with a crazy bass playing outside, you know, you need, you know, they're cutting dub plates, which are one of a kind records to like test that record on the sound to see if it could be a hit record and then having like live DJs, MCs, toasts on the records live, you know, and the whole evolution of that and how that Mm -hmm. evolved into all this stuff. And then dub, you know, King Tubby started out being a a guy who fixed radios and TVs and ended up building (laughs) fires, built the best sound, you know, what people say is maybe the best sound system of all time. And then you, Roy, who passed away recently, was like not the first, but the first kind of really famous and to take it up a level, like MC to kind of like toast or rap on the sound. And so then, you know, how that spread into, you know, all this other music and like doing like dub plate, you know, how the dub plate thing, you know, influenced so much DJ culture Mm -hmm. in the UK with techno and all that, you know, like, you know, how that meshed with those other, you know, Detroit techno or Chicago house or like these different things coming together. Yeah. It's really, it's really pretty infinite. And, you know, I think the amazing thing about Jamaica too, is if you look at it on the map, it's like, it is not a large island. (laughs) Yeah. So just the amount of like interesting music and, you know, another thing that was really cool. One of the, Feel Free has actually not even really done that many gigs, actually. Mm-hmm. And we really haven't even used the sound system that much. But kind of early on, one of the shows we got to do was with Scientist. Um, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> so so our friend, a friend of ours, was connected to some Red Bull um, money. And at the time, this is a couple years ago, Red Bull was like doing their their music stuff, where Red Bull was like pumping money at, you know, kind of hip, interesting music, basically. You mean the interesting drink, right? What's that? You mean the interesting drink, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, and so Red Bull was doing all this, like, under, you know, kind of, like, music stuff, and there's, like, all the the Red Bull interview series, which, you know, there's a bunch of interesting... Equinox was on one of those. Mm. People like MF Doom was on one. Like, you know, really great. They're doing all this stuff, so our friend was like, Hey, do you guys want to like do a sound system party and get Red Bull funding and like curate it? And we're like, uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so he's like, who do you want to bring? And I, we were kind of talking about some stuff and I was like, I think I know how to get a hold of scientist. He lives in LA. Um, 
And they're like, do it. And I just like got a hold of him. Wow. <laughs> he came out with a vocalist um, called Empress Sativa, who's a younger, very Rasta oriented um, vocalist who can do like rub a dub dance hall style vocals live on a sound. So Scientist was doing his dub mix stuff. And then uh, Empress was like live on the mic as his like MC. And uh, my old friends Peaking Lights flew them out to play as well. So it's kind of an eclectic lit gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was like, yeah. And it was just, I, at the time, I kind of like, it happened so fast. And like, I was just kind of in charge of like, you know, driving scientists around and like entertaining them and like, you know, doing different stuff that I, I just kind of didn't fully realize how that fits into the whole history for me of all this music and stuff where it's like, you know, then old friends of mine, like Peking Lights, who used to live in Madison, Wisconsin, and they have their own origins in electronic music and dub and different things. And yeah, it's just, it's just, it's sometimes it's just like, if you actually stop, for a moment, like we were talking about, it's like, how did I, how the hell did I get <laughs> this point right here? You know, right. but at the same time, you can kick it back. And it's like a lot of the same, you know, like us connecting again a little bit, Eric, over the bug, you know, it's just like, oh, for sure. We're, we're, you know, once, once you responded to that, I'm like, oh yeah, duh, Eric's over the bug. That totally makes sense that he would be, you know. Well, um, it's funny, my friend Sean Jones, uh, who, passed away a couple of years ago he actually yeah. is the one that got me into the bug and the foundation for that was i think the bug worked with like some industrial artists that sean already listened to and then so he got the record pressure because he was that kind of guy that he would just if he knew somebody worked on something he would get a record by them even if he had never heard it and yeah. so we heard pressure and he showed it to me i was like oh shit I've never heard anything like this. I've heard dub. I've heard reggae. I've heard industrial, but nothing quite like this. And then London Zoo came out and it was also really industrial in a sense, but kind of laid off a little bit. And it, it was Mm -hmm. amazing too. So yeah, I have him to thank for being into that. I don't think I would have, um, I don't think I would have found it on my own, but then I started to listen to a lot more, stuff like usual my usual mo is to find something i like and then try to find every single thing that influenced that so yeah, yeah. so yeah. that helped me to go back and listen to some other stuff but i'm not sure if i would have landed there on my own so yeah and i think that goes back to the the eclectic thing of like you know everyone kind of that we came up with like everyone kind of went down their different paths at different mm-hmm. times but for the most part like a lot of those people are into a lot of different music and are really open to like listening to different things. And, right. yeah. and then when you, when you have that mentality, it just like, yeah, the, the possibilities just become so much more broad, you know? And like, they do. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's also maybe a thing of just being from Iowa where it's like, you know, and it's the same thing for Derek and I kind of like on this point where when we were thinking about like writing our own tracks and stuff, you know, we live in Minnesota, like we're in the US, like we can't do like a more traditional dub UK stepper style sound system like would be in the UK or Northern Europe because we're not there. And like, mm. it just wouldn't really make sense. And we don't, 
we don't really have an audience here that's like you know when you when you're living in a in a place that has like a big scene for something you can kind of like oh i just make minimal techno and i only play minimal techno shows and like right. that's the only people i interact with but when you're from where we're from even mm-hmm. regionally it's like you just have a you know we grew up like going to shows where there's all there's like a metal band there's a punk band there's an emo band there's a ska band there's you know oh for sure know, and i think I, all I, of us talk to each other when we see each other and tell each other what we're into at the time and i think actually that's why dan and i started or dan started this podcast but when he invited me on we decided that we would just talk about what we're into and i think the origins of that probably are from being from a small town pre uh streaming you know it's like you saw your friend and you had to tell each other what to listen to because otherwise how the hell do you know what you're supposed to listen to? So, you know, you have one friend over here who's telling you to listen to Arthur Brown and another guy over here telling you to listen to Kraftwerk and another guy telling you to listen to The Bug. Like, you're just going to take it all in and yeah. find it for yourself, you know? Well, and I also think, like, uh, one of the things, if, if if I look back to when I was, like, 15 years old when my musical tastes were not evolved to the point that they are now, Um, One of the things, one of the other advantages that I think you could say that we had growing up in a small town is that because of the fact that there wasn't these scenes that existed in like Muscatine, um, and and like you said, Sean, you would go to a show and it would be a metal band, an emo Mm -hmm. band, a punk band, and maybe like an indie rock band or an alternative band, and they all just... All of that existed as like one thing to, to us, basically, I think. Or at least speaking from my experience, um, when I was 15 and 16, I didn't really like, um, you know, because at the time I was into something like corn, but I was also into like Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Like those things didn't like, I didn't separate those too much when I was like 15 or 16. Like it made total sense to see like corn next to a Sonic Youth CD next to like, you know, like a um, Deftone CD or something like that, Smashing Pumpkins, and then maybe something, you know, like Fugazi or Jesus, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think like that has kind of a lot to do with it as well, is that, you know, there was no punk scene. There was just a music scene in Muscatine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it just, and you basically, it's another sort of like take what you can get, you know, like sort of thing. It just so happened that, you know, at the time those bands you know kind of they were exactly what maybe we all needed you know what i'm saying like at that time yeah totally and so yeah i think that kind of developed the um diversity kind of mentality that maybe we have a little bit more and the openness mm-hmm. you know i don't know it's it was definitely interesting growing up in muscatine iowa between the uh and going to high school between like 1996 and 99. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I wouldn't know, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, Eric. Oh, yeah, that, you're old. You're much younger than us, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, much younger. You should have been there in the 2010s. <laughs> oh, geez. But yeah, it's, it's, it is, yeah, it's, so there's a lot of things about like, you know, even for me, like, you know, putting out these records again, because it is kind of like starting over um, a bit, 
it's it's pretty removed from like the networks I operated in with night people. But then at the same time, there is crossover. But then also it's like, we're, it's kind of a really different era now, like compared to even a few years ago, like five, six years ago, it's just like things have even changed more because of like streaming and the way people kind of absorb information or absorb music or think about it. Um, and then, you know, the effects of COVID-19 and like, mm-hmm. what's, what's the world like, or what is it going to be yeah. like? Yo. What's that? <laughs> I was just joking. I was like, you mean that's real? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we could all be living in a simulation. I don't know. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of a wild ride, so I don't know. I mean, no, at, this, at this point, I'll accept anything as a uh, reason why we're here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a trip. Yeah, and then, like, I mean, even from, like, a certain standpoint, trying to trying to press records over the last year was a really kind of disastrous experience. And mm. so I'm just thankful they finally came out and stuff because it was, it was a really like tons of delays, all kinds of issues. Um, there was a big fire in California right before COVID started where um, the only, there's like two lacquer plants in the entire world, one in Japan mm. and one in California that, that make all the vinyl lacquer for the, the vinyl pressing process. Oh yes. I remember that. Yes. yes. So one of them burnt down, um, right when we were like finishing these records and I was just like, Oh my God, is like the whole vinyl industry, this gonna just die like overnight because of this lacquer plant burned down. But luckily like it's still going, but I don't know what the long terms of effects of that'll be because it is a major thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there was that factor that was kind of behind the scenes, um, too. Um, Didn't a couple of venues, like, like sort of like warehouse venues or something, uh, burn down too? Yeah, I mean that was another thing. That's been a few years ago, but there was the ghost ship fire, which was just a warehouse um, in Oakland, uh, where you know just just kind of a warehouse where people live or their like art space or whatever, the kind of place when I went on tour back in the day, I played like tons of shows at spaces like that. Um, and you know, basement gigs, warehouse gigs, etc. And it burned down. And, um, a guy by the name of Joey Cassio, who was part of a group called uncanny Valley that had put out stuff on night. People passed away in that fire. Mm-hmm. along with like a whole bunch of other people and i had several good friends that were at that show that night and then the headlining at golden donna um my friend joel who's from madison wisconsin originally madison area he was headlining that show and so that was like a really catastrophic thing that i feel like has had effects that maybe we won't fully know until the world opens back up more again but that right. that really like kind of put some nails in the potential coffin for like DIY underground venues like in the US and I mm-hmm. I feel like that's really like kind of gone away a lot more compared to the heyday of you know the mid 2000s when I was living in Iowa City and you know throwing shows in my house and there's a warehouse space and touring you know where you're only playing warehouse spaces like across the country and like but at the same time there's always an ebb and a flow of that stuff mm-hmm. you know there's a whole history of like you know, who knows, like maybe COVID will have the effect of 
there'll be lots of commercial space that sits empty because people don't want right. to pay rent anymore because they can just do their company virtually. Right. And so this, this rehashing of vacant spaces that'll be taken over by the weirdos and the punks and the ravers, you know, again, for sure. Like we can only hope, you know, but, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, no one's going to go back to work. Why would they? Yeah. I mean, they know they know they don't have to, you know, and yeah. even the bosses and the owners have to be like, wait, why are we renting out all this office space and we can just pay these fools to sit around in their pajamas? You know, like exactly. there's yeah. no way they're going to it's going to return back to, you know, bustling downtowns with high rises full of people. Like, why would it? I remember hearing something. I don't remember where I heard this from, but somebody was joking about wait till we can download a meal. And so <laughs> even fast food workers will be doing that before too long. Right. There you go. Oh boy. Hmm. I mean, it's weird though, even thinking about that. Cause I was talking to Derek, uh, who I do the sound, you know, need to feel free with the other day. And we were, we were watching like this old black flag bootleg video. Um, it's kind of a famous one where they're playing in Philly and it's like the full, this is really nerdy, but the full lineup with like Des Cadena on second guitar. It's the video where like Rollins like punches people a bunch. I mean, there's probably multiple videos like that. <laughs> I was going to say that seemed to be a regular thing back but then. But anyway, it's, in my mind, it's a really classic one and we were watching it and we were then like talking about like, you know, growing up, like reading, get in the van and mm-hmm. the whole mentality of all that. Sure. And how- that affected me probably in ways that were like sort of maybe negative of like being a little too hardcore or punk about touring and stuff where it was like, yeah, maybe I should have preserved myself a little bit better. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, right there with you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we didn't have to make it so, we probably didn't have to make it so brutal. Like, that <laughs> you know? like why'd we do that but anyways <laughs> at the same time i'm like right back to like oh we have a giant sound system and we can just take it anywhere and as long as we have like certain like electrical voltage we can just set this thing right. up and let it rip you know <laughs> and like and well, definitely- i had to get a generator for the derecho storm that we had so let me know if you want to play in iowa city i'll just <laughs> haul it somewhere and well we Derek is a carpenter by trade and he just got a new van for his uh, big Springer style van for his, uh, for his uh, profession. So that yeah. now we have like our own van to haul the system. So nice. we, were we were joking around, but kind of serious is like, okay, now we can go full black flag with the, the sound system, you know, like we have, our, sure. so now we don't have to rent a van. So, you know, you're freed up where, we can go, yeah, we can drive down to Iowa City and just, you know, get get gas money and maybe a little extra and it's cool. Versus right. before we had to rent a van, so the overhead mm-hmm. was just like so much more brutal. That's uh, awesome. But, yeah, so. Sure. Well, I Sean. Guess, um, oh, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, um, well, we, we probably should uh, – wrap this up here before too long. Otherwise it's going to be a three hour podcast with our intro. (laughs) Um, But um, I did want to ask just um, one last question. If you have uh, another question too, Eric, feel free. Um, But I I just wanted to ask you, Sean, because uh, I know you've listened to uh, at least some of our episodes um, in the past. And you know that basically for the most part, we talk about records. Yeah. 
So, and you kind of touched upon some of this anyway, but um, what would you consider, um, and this is a really difficult question, because if I was asked this question on the spot, I would, I would have to think about it. Um, but uh, what would you consider your top three? Because we always pick three records every week. Uh, generally, for this week, for the, t- uh, for the sake of time, we only did one in the introduction, um, which you'll hear when you listen back to it. But um, anyway, uh, what would you consider the top three most inspirational records? Uh, pretty much of all time. Damn. Recently, <laughs> uh, I could even say recently, like what are three records that just, you know, define the musical evolution of Sean Reed? Wow. So, to where I am now, I think, <laughs> Man, that's that it's, is. It's a tough question. I, I gave you the uh, warning. <laughs> I think, I think as far as like, I guess I'd think about it in a gravity, you know, kind of in a gravity way of like, okay, what, what are three records that had like serious gravity around them, um, that I'll speak to it in terms of feel free, hi-fi, profit noir that okay. you know maybe like okay. how that came to that point and i think i think i think i would have to say throbbing gristle third annual report um and the story behind that record was that someone you i think both know or at least eric knows really well justin Baumgartner, mm-hmm. both Brett had had that record and he wasn't really that into it. And he's like, Sean, I'll sell you this record for five bucks. And I was like, all right, cool. And so I got that record and it, it just like really had something to it um, that I could probably talk about a bunch, but I won't. That, that, that it just had like a, even though that's not a record I listened to that much or like, uh, like revisit necessarily or throw on the turntable all the time. It's not like it's clocked the most hours or something. But there was an edginess and a sound and an experimentalism and different things to that record specifically and how dark and messed up it is that I think is still was an influence like going forward to this Buffett Noir record that we just put out. Um, I would say another one I would I would have to say um, Heart of the Congos, again, that Lee Perry Congos record. Um, again, it's not the reggae record I play the most. It's not the one that I, you know, that's like my wheelhouse exactly perfectly. Um, but it had, a, again, a certain gravity and staying power and influence that, like, inspired me and influenced me to go down, like, every single avenue of the the whole Jamaican uh, music world and into sound deeper sound system stuff into you know deeper reggae stuff and dub and all of that and that that record I think is also just like kind of an all time record of kind of any genre as far as being a cult record that if you're into like weirdo psychedelic folk music like you might be able to listen to that record like if you're into weirdo electronic records like you might dig that record like there's a lot of different things in that record i think mm-hmm. um and then oh, man the, the last one huh. 
Um, man, that's tough. Number three. <laughs> well, I think those two answers are great. Third, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> third one is always a charm or a curse. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do. Uh, I, I'm gonna just say. I don't know what record it would be because I don't really listen to them anymore. And I don't even know if for me they totally hold up musically or anything. And this is kind of a cheesy answer, and I'm surprised I'm going to say it. And I mean, I have no real shame about it. But I think I would say Fugazi because oh. in high school, when I, and I, I literally haven't listened to Fugazi in years. Mm-hmm. But in high school, when I got into Fugazi, I remember specifically. Uh, I keep name dropping people. A lot of people wouldn't know outside of our circle, but whatever. Um, I remember being at a little gathering at Grant Jackson's house, and Noah Kester brought the instrument VHS. And the instrument was this kind of movie Fugazi put out of like live performance. And that like captured my imagination so fully. And I feel like that was like, getting into them was really you know because when you getting into fugazi it like it further provided the whole framework of the diy thing of that era which obviously is still a part of me because i'm putting out you know these records i just put out or like i silk screen the covers i got like stickers made that go on the covers i like hand stamped the labels like mm-hmm. you know it's still like so DIY I can never seem to get away from it and that still just like has a huge impact on me and I was actually talking to the record these records are distributed outside of the US by a uh, uh, a distributor and record store called Rub-A-Dub that's based in Scotland and I was talking to this guy Richard who works there uh, about these records I sent you guys as well Mm. and we ended up talking about Fugazi and um, some other things from that era and that kind of DIY, foundational DIY thing. And so I think that's the other one, just because it's like getting into Fugazi is like getting into like like doubling down lifestyle in a way I didn't even understand at the time. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I- there's a side of that where now I, I can still like, quote unquote come out of retirement and like put out a record again which is like the money Derek and I saved up over a couple of years you know um, and just roll the dice on trying to get it distributed and trying to get people to listen to it and you know sending it to friends you know and and sending it to you know old friends and, and stuff like that it's, it still has the exact same vibe for me that it's it's always had even though musically it's like down another yeah, wormhole for sure, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that sean because i think fagazi and the whole discord movement in general was just a uh, such a uh, i mean such a profound influence on just about everyone who was doing like diy around that time period you know in the late 90s early 2000s mm-hmm. i think a lot of us wouldn't have even known that there was such a thing that existed without having heard Fugazi and Minor Threat and the whole Discord thing. So I can totally see how that could be a, how that could be a, uh, you know, 
an influence on what you were doing with like night people and things like that. Oh yeah. Mass. I mean, night people is like so influenced by that stuff and like crass and mm-hmm. crass is a major influence on me too. Cause crass had like the sound of crass, but then they had like the artwork and the record packaging is actually so amazing, but it's all really minimal and like the politics of it, just the whole thing, you know, it's just like such a complete package right. that, you know, as an artist person and stuff, and it was like the most punk thing too, you yeah. know? So, but actually way weirder than what maybe people like in a way would think of it as, you know, mm-hmm. grass is like pretty kind of far out actually. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, well, let's see, we're at, an hour and a half now with this conversation. Yeah. I remember <laughs> Eric, uh, we were trying to, our goal was 45 minutes or less. <laughs> well, we can always just cut our intro too. I think people would rather hear Sean than us anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no, I could definitely edit out, you know, uh, the uh, parts of the intro. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not too worried about it anyway. I just nah. wanted to bring that up. It's coming up to like an hour and a half here. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys having me. It's cool to uh, talk to you guys about music. And, uh, you know, I was it was cool to see the podcast because, you know, going back to the cheesy DIY thing, you know, it's I just appreciate when people just they just do stuff, you know, let's make sure. a podcast. Good, you know, it's like I'm, yeah. I'm glad to see that you're still doing stuff too, Sean. Um, I mean, because I knew uh, that night people kind of, uh, you know, cease to exist, and then I, I was kind of wondering, you know, like if we were going to hear anything, you know, because I was a Wet Hair fan. I really liked, um, the, especially the last couple of records, the uh, Spill of the Atmosphere and the Floating World. Uh, oh, really yeah, enjoyed man. those records a lot. And, um, so I was, you know, I was wondering if uh, you were going to do anything and then, uh, you know, like what you were going to do going on from there. And so it's, it's super cool that you're doing this, this thing right here. You know, it's, it's like, I was kind of, you know, telling Eric, um, it just sort of seems like everything that you do has some sort of common thread from, you know, uh, the first band, My Pet Robot. Well, I guess your first band technically was what Optimus Primed in high school. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which probably there. has no connection to what you're doing now. <laughs> but um, yeah. And then of course My Pet Robot, and then I remember Sender Receiver Hugs, and then Raccoon, Wet Hair. But especially like the Night People, starting with that, you know, like the Raccoon onward. Um, yeah. Everything's completely different even like the wet hair albums like each one has their own vibe but there's still like a common thread visually aesthetically and artistically you know um, at least from my perspective and, yeah uh, so i really appreciate that you're you're still doing stuff as well sean and and i it's super interesting to me that you're doing the um the dub thing with the sound system and everything like that that's stuff that I have yet to really delve into the history of that. So it was actually really cool hearing you and Eric talk about that stuff. Cause uh, that's one aspect of music that I'm not too familiar with. And well, so I didn't, I didn't know what a toaster was like, you know, I mean, I know what a toaster is like if I'm gonna <laughs> make it for, you know, breakfast or something, but I didn't know that that was a term used, you know, in like that culture. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, Dan, if you ever, uh, like, you know, off, off air here, like just going forward, if you ever, you know, want a list or want an email just with some links and stuff to check out. I mean, I, I love, you know, I never, I never want to come across like I have any flex or any snob, snob tendencies about music. Like I, I love music. Like I always just want to share music with people. Sure. Or, you know, any knowledge I have, like, I just, you know, it's not my music. It's like someone else made this awesome music. And, you know, I only probably know about it from someone else showing it to me. So I'm always down to like trade, you know, record lists and talk about records. And yeah, yeah so. he's not joking. He sent yeah. me like five artists to listen to Dude. when we were talking on uh, Instagram. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have Facebook or Twitter anymore, but I know that we're, uh, you know, I'm following you and you're following me on Instagram. Maybe yeah, I'll that's kind of the only one I use anyway, so. Yeah, I, uh, that's the only one that I use right now. But, um, yeah, I'll hit you up through message, Sean. Definitely. I would love okay. that. Um, yeah, sounds good. So, uh, Eric, do you have anything that you want to add real quick? or? Um, well, okay, super fast. Uh, something about me is that I am weird. And on multiple levels. And one of the things that people may not think is true about me is that I really like having, I, I like listening to music in the car. Um, and I have a sub in my car, not a big one, but enough that it hits. And your records that you shared with us hit super hard. And um, this is my question. How much of that had to do with the mastering? <laughs> I probably could have asked you this on my own, but it, it, no, no, the cool bass thing. hits so hard. I, I just didn't know if that's how it sounds on your headphones when you're recording or if that deep, heavy bass that hits super hard, if that was something that comes from mastering or do you actually get that sound when you're recording? <laughs> um, That that thing so ba the you know so getting back to like reggae sound systems and all that reggae mm -hmm. culture it's all about drum and bass you know it's all about bass and like the perfection of bass and bass being like really heavy and like but like hitting in a way where it's not like distracting at the same time you know right. it, it's like it's really immersive so mm -hmm. we knew we had to bring it on that level on that front to to really succeed in any way with this music you know and like it's really it's the most important aspect of the music and it was an a giant giant learning curve and like okay. i feel like it's something we can still we're still figuring out you know okay. it's but it's a huge learning curve of like getting into the detail of, of making bass on that level and really trying to i mean it's good to know that you put it in the car because i cars are a great place to listen to music like when you Mm -hmm. You finish a mix, you know, take it out to the car and listen to it. I mean, I think that's a great way to listen to mixes to figure out where the music's at, you know. Right. And um, to have it hit like that's cool because that's definitely a goal, big yeah. goal. Um, but I think um, we definitely, with this music, like it took us a long time to figure that out. And we've made big strides with that. Um you can tell like Equinox, like they come from that, like they have a lot of experience with that. So like we did, you know, I did like talk to some people about it and stuff a little bit, like as you're trying to figure out how to do different things production wise and, and, right. and articulate certain sounds. 
But, you know, when I did Night People as a label, my friend Pete, Pete Swanson, who is in a group called Yellow Swans, mastered all the records. And, you know, he did a really great job and it really fit the music and all of that. Um, but the mastering for those records, just it just wasn't as big a deal. And, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. throwing any shade at Pete by any means. He's a great right. dude. Did a great job. Like, but doing a records like these, I feel like the mastering is a huge part of it. Okay. Like, to put and to put out like DJ oriented records, period. Like records that are mm-hmm. kind of high high records to go on a sound system with like a, you know, our sound is divided between bass, mids, and highs, and it's literally sp- spread out on that speaker spectrum. Mm-hmm. So you can really articulate that sound. Right. So you need to be playing like, you know, from records that like sound good. Mm-hmm. And so, and can articulate that bass and stuff. So yeah, we, we basically worked with our friend Alec, who is um, kind of an up and coming mastering engineer mm. here in the Twin Cities. His name's Alec Neff. And he works, he just started working for right around the time we were going to put out, do these records, like get them mastered. Mm-hmm. Um, an old school mastering vinyl mastering studio here called Rareform, and so we did work with them um, because we would have had to like send it to Europe if not, right. basically. Okay. And you get yeah, into, like, that was crazy. kind of my question because my stuff but, does not hit <laughs> like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know there's different stuff you can do you know to try to learn, and that we're you know we're part of that learning curve. But I think. You know, that was the thing we discussed a lot of like, okay, we're putting out like more DJ oriented records. Like, mm-hmm. I think the mastering importance goes goes up a level, you know, yeah. when it's like, it's going to be played on a speaker system that like maybe that, you know, because there's the, the different music you listen to in different contexts. And I think mm-hmm. Profit Noir is at its most successful if you're like, if it's like cranked, you know, if right. you listen to it loud. <laughs> Where the Equinox record you can listen to more in a chill way, kind of, because right. it's a more chill record. But yeah, nice. Yeah, sorry to take it off the off the tracks there a little, but no, I was just curious. I appreciate nerdy questions. You know, I mean, <laughs> nice. there's a lot of levels of nerdiness in in this stuff. You know, for me, so oh yeah, I, all right. Well, um, so those records are going to be available on March 26th. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, you can actually pre-order them right now um, uh, from the, you know, if you, like, search Digital Sting Records, you can find the Bandcamp, you can find the website. You can get them now. Like, I'm starting to send them out now. Um, yeah, but they'll, they'll pretty much be available, like, you know, all over the world, like, on, uh, yeah, March 26th. Awesome. Nice. Uh, one of the things... I'm definitely going to put in my order here in the next couple of weeks because uh, I want I, de- I want to hear them on vinyl, man. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, what I heard through my computer speaker was amazing, and I think that uh, putting it on the record player is just going to enhance it that much more. Really, really good, Sean. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I dig the podcast. If you ever want to just, like, ring me up and talk about any any records ever just talk about a record i can always talk about records too so yeah. all right Absolutely, for sure um any last words sean before um we uh end this right here no i don't think so thanks for thanks for having me thanks for having me yeah, yeah. nice yeah. talking to you yeah great catching up we'll have to next time i'm down your guys's way we'll have to the world when the world turns a little bit more we'll have to <laughs> 
Sounds good. Yes, absolutely. Sean, you take care of yourself. And uh, um, yeah, man, uh, we will uh, see you guys next week.